Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Uh, so, in the church Bibles, uh, we're reading through Ruth 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'd be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and covered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than which you have shown earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives as I will do it, lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said... No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl uh, you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, so, he poured it into six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me this six measures of barley saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Super great. Good to be with you. If I haven't met you, my name is Steve, and uh, I'm going to be speaking. This is part two of a, a little uh, of Ruth chapter 3. We did it last week thinking about a, a woman of risk and courage and a man of character and integrity. And uh, this is part two. Before I get into part two, uh, just a little update. Jez prayed about it in the morning congregation. We're, we're planning on starting a morning congregation. And we think we might have found our venue called Oatlands Primary School uh, in Stillorgan. And we've asked them if we can have a, you know, we've given them the go. And he, the head, the principal, who's a lovely guy called Fergal, is speaking to his board to give us the go. So we have also asked to have one final go and look at the place on Tuesday. So just to keep you up to date, please be praying, because this week could be the week we sort of go, yeah, we know where we're going to be in September and can start making plans. 
And there's a real openness in both the secondary school and the primary school for us to also be involved in the community, not just meet there on a Sunday, which is also exciting. So be praying uh, for us this week. Uh, so, Ruth and Boaz, uh, part two, Ruth chapter three. Uh, or I'm going to talk about four fairly insignificant, inconsequential themes. Singleness, dating, sexual boundaries, and marriage. Are you ready? I'm not sure I am. Hold on to your seats. Before we get into the juicy bits, let's remind you of the story of Ruth and Boaz, which will provide the framework for thinking on these four issues. Ruth is a widow and a foreigner. Uh, She's committed to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and therefore emigrated uh, from Moab, where she's from, to Israel. And she's vulnerable and she's weak as a young foreign widow. Naomi is lamenting because she's lost her husband in Moab and she's lost her two sons in Moab. Um, And she's come back after 10 years. The famine is over in Israel. And apart from the unlikely commitment of her Moab daughter-in-law, Naomi has nothing going for her in her old age. She is very vulnerable and very weak. But God is moving behind the scenes of history to care for his people. He has his eye on the weak and vulnerable. As these two women return to Bethlehem, it happens to be the barley harvest. And, as these, uh, and Ruth, on the advice of Naomi, did not get stuck in passivity and gloom in her suffering. She shows great energy and get up and go, and she heads off to the local fields. And it happens to be a field of a man called Boaz, who's a man of standing, noble character, and a distant relative of Naomi. As a distant relative, he's a kinsman or a guardian redeemer who's obliged under Old Testament law to ensure any widow in the family is looked after and the family line and the family land is preserved. It's clear that the God of Israel has his eye on the foreign widow, Ruth, because Boaz has his eye on Ruth. Not with any sexual intent at this stage. He's an older man, but because he's so impressed by what he's heard about Ruth. Before he ever meets Ruth, her reputation precedes her. Her character has won Boaz's heart. So when they do meet, he says, I heard all about your courage and your commitment to your aging mother-in-law. Boaz was impressed before he ever saw Ruth with her character. So Boaz cares for Ruth and ensures that the men don't molest her. This is chapter two, that she's amply provided for. Boaz is a a wealthy business owner, but he fears the Lord. And the Old Testament said, if you're a business owner and you're in a field, you need to make sure the, the poor can come and take from your field to be looked after. And Boaz has a field like that, but he doesn't just obey the letter of the law. The spirit of the law is in his heart. He embodies the character of God, which the Old Testament law was all about. Compassion, love, justice, mercy integrity. And so we have this wonderful moment as they meet in the fields. I've been told all, this is chapter two, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the, the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. He wants God to repay Ruth, uh, who's come to take shelter in the God of Israel's wings. Boaz's great desire for Ruth is that she's protected and cared for. And that brings us to chapter 3. 
and a wonderful romantic story is brewing. But again, it takes the advice of Naomi, who's been scheming and planning in the background about how to get Prince Charming and the damsel in distress together. So Naomi tells Ruth, look, look, drop, drop dead gorgeous. He'll have had a day working in the fields. He'll have had a good meal with his friends. He'll have had a bit of wine. You make sure you smell and look good. And when he comes back, be there for him. Not for a sexual move, as Hollywood have us, uh, would portray this, but for a much deeper move. It's a daring encounter on the threshing floor in the middle of the night. Boaz awakes and finds drop-dead gorgeous Ruth at his feet. And at this point, Ruth says, you prayed a blessing over me in the field. You had a great desire for me to be protected in your fields. You be the answer to your prayer, Boaz. You answer or you fulfill the desire you had for me. So she says this, I am your servant Ruth, verse 3. Spread the corner of your garment over me, for you are a guardian redeemer of our family, which in Old Testament language is Ruth's way of getting Boaz to ask for her hand in marriage. This kindness, Boaz says, is greater than which you showed earlier to your mother-in-law. You have not run after younger men, so Boaz is older, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all you ask, marriage. All the people in my town know that you're a, noble, a woman of noble character. And I said last week, this is the moment Hollywood would have a passionate sex scene on the threshing floor, and that would be the end of our raunchy story. But Boaz is thinking about the Old Testament law, not about sex. So he says in verse 12... Although it is true I'm a guardian redeemer of, of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as a guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here till morning. And then he protects her reputation and doesn't want anyone to any scandal, like they mustn't be known. And he makes sure that Naomi has lots of food as ever in the story. Um, and uh, he says, look, We've got to do this properly, the proper way. Come back in chapter 4 and you'll find out. And there's another nearer redeemer who uh, gets the first chance. And uh, we're going to see if Boaz is going to miss the chance to marry the woman he loves. So, which he does, okay? Spoiler alert. Uh, come back next week. They get married. Um, so we learn, what do we learn about singleness, dating, sexual boundaries, and marriage? Well, firstly, singleness. We learn about well-used singleness in service of others. The comedian Chris Rock captures the modern mood about singleness and marriage when he said, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? As if they're the only two options on the table. Of course, that is a sad reality of how many people seem to exist in the two states, but it shouldn't be the way you have to exist, whether married or single. Ruth was a single woman, and we know that from what we can know, Boaz was a single man. Ruth was a widow, but Boaz had lots of money. Ruth was young, Boaz was older. Are either of them living terrible lives in their singleness? No, they're very active. They're discovering and being obedient to God's will, under whose wings they've both taken refuge. They're following God's law as their guide for life. They use their singleness wisely. One person put it like this. Many experience their single status as a burden, a wasteful holding pattern before finding someone and getting on with the real life. For many people, singleness has become a strong identity, but without any sense of vocation. 
or calling. Not Ruth and Boaz. They were single and they had a vocation, a calling in their singleness. Ruth, I've got to care for my mother-in-law. Boaz, I've got to run a great fair run company which cares for the poor. And they point forward to another famous person in history who was single. Jesus. Lived a full life, fully human life. He knew the joys and challenges, the ups and downs. He knew loneliness as a single person. He was shunned by his family, we're told at one point. And he knew a more desperate loneliness than any earthly loneliness as he was alone on a cross, cursed by God. He knew what it was to be single and all the challenges, but his life was fulfilled and it was not on hold in his singleness. The Apostle Paul was single and he was the first person in the history of the world to say singleness was a gift. No one had ever thought that singleness was a gift until Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've been reflecting in Ruth chapters 1 and 2 how to be single as a woman in the ancient world was to be very vulnerable. No one thought singleness was a positive thing in the first century. Egyptians, Jews, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans. Singleness meant a status without prospects and a future. Without children, you had no honor in the ancient world, no lasting significance and legacy. Without children, you just vanished. You know, barrenness was a source of shame. No one ever held up singleness as a gift and a calling from God. And then the founder of the Christian faith comes along as a single man. And the great apostle of the Christian faith comes along and said, our singleness is a gift. One lady put it like this. Ultimately, we're single because that's God's will for us right now. That's it. It's not because we're too old, too fat, too skinny, too tall, too short, too quiet, too loud, too smart, too simple, too demanding, or too anything else. It's not wholly because of past failures or sin tendencies. It's not because we're of one one race when many men or women, whichever way you spin this, you as a lady, around us are of the other. It's not because the men we know tend towards passive temperaments. It's not because there are more women than men in our church. Though perhaps these seem like valid reasons, they don't trump God's will. One look at marriages we know or the ones announced in the paper will assure us that these factors were present in many people's lives and they still got married. We are single today because God apportioned us this gift today. She goes on to say, it's not a gift that we have to spend time trying to identify, that we should worry about having. If we're single, we have the gracious gift of singleness. How we feel about it. Do I like being single? Do I desire marriage? It's not part of the equation. The emphasis here is on the gracious God who gives good gifts and ultimately on his purposes for giving them. Now, if singleness is a gift, how should we use the gift? Well, if we understand gift as we should after at any point in the scriptures, a gift is always in service of others, 1 Corinthians 12. So the gift of singleness means fruitfulness in life and ministry through the single state. Since marriage, too, is a gift from God, God has given that most people's gift of singleness will be for a finite time. But whether singleness be temporary or long-term, it's a gift that means fruitfulness in life and ministry through the single state. That's what we see in the lives of Ruth and Boaz. Why? Why do we see it in their lives? Because the book of Ruth continually tells us they'd first come to take refuge in the ultimate lover, God. And they trusted his law 
as the guide for their life. In other words, their identity was not first and foremost in their status as single people, but as their status as those that had taken refuge in God. Paige, Brenton, uh, Paige, Brown, in, uh, Paige Benton Brown, in her great little article, Singled Out by God for Good, puts it like this. Am I a Christian single or a single Christian? The discrepancy in grammatical construction may be somewhat subtle, but the difference in mindset is profound. Which word is determinative and which is descriptive? You see, we singles are chronic amnesiacs. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. I am a single Christian. My identity is not found in my marital status, but in my redemptive status. I'm one of the haves, not one of the have-nots. Tim Keller puts it like this. We should be neither overly elated by getting married nor overly disappointed by not being so. Because Christ is the only spouse that can truly fulfill us and God's family the only family that will truly embrace and satisfy us. Keller talks about God's family. Notice how in her singleness Ruth allowed Naomi twice, we know from the narrative, to speak into her life as to what she should do Next, It's vital if you're single, you get older people and maybe married people to speak into your life about what you should do. You need their wisdom. Let me finish one more quote on singleness by one more quote from Paige Benton, Paige Benton Brown. Let's face it, singleness is not an inherently inferior state of affairs. If it were, heaven would be inferior to this world for the majority of Christians. Jesus says there'll be no earthly marriage in heaven. Matthew 22. But I want to be married, she says. I pray to that end every day. She goes on. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. I may never have another date and die an old maid at 93 because God is so good to me. Not my will, but his be done. Until then, I'm claiming as my verse, if any person would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. Singleness, a gift to use in service of others. Let's talk about intentional and wise dating. The Bible never speaks to the topic of dating because how dating is a modern phenomenon. But we can learn some principles that guide us as we think about Christians and dating. Firstly, romance and dating require wisdom and outside advice. I just mentioned that. Naomi speaks in to Ruth, to help her. Tim Keller puts it like this, our personal experience is too easily skewed. The church community has married people in it who have much wisdom for single people to hear. Singles should, uh, should get community input at every step of the way when seeking marriage. I encourage you to do that. Paul Miller, in his magnificent must-read book, A Loving Life, reflecting on the book of Ruth, says, a neglected aspect of love is on display here, wisdom. Our culture puts falling in love front and center, but forgets thinking in love. Not Naomi. She thinks about how to make love happen. That's wisdom. Without wisdom, Naomi and Ruth's situation would remain frozen. He goes on to say, thinking, planning, and problem and solving are completely intertwined with romance, love, and audacity. Life is like that. When we separate love from thinking, love just gets weird and floaty and finally tragic as, love, as, uh, as lives are destroyed. All under the banner of falling in love. It's good to think in love even as you're falling in love and to do that with outside advice. 
Secondly, seek comprehensive attraction. Now, my family gave me a lot of abuse for this phrase. If you can think of a better one, let me know after the talk. Ruth is not a perfectionist hunting for the perfect husband. We know Ruth is young, and the narrative implies she's very attractive, but she doesn't go after the younger, attractive men. Why not? Because she's attracted to more than looks. The lesson when it comes to dating and marriage is simple. Put faith and character clearly above looks when deciding on who to go out with and marry. Faith and character above looks. We'll all grow ugly in the end. You will. I will. But faith and character can become more beautiful to the very end. Though outwardly wasting away, the Apostle Paul says, inwardly we're being renewed day by... We're all going to look ugly at the end, but our faith and our... Sorry, you, did you like... What a great sermon. My, my pastor told me I was going to look ugly. Yes, that's what's going to happen. But by the way, that's clearly why Ruth is attracted to Boaz and vice versa. Be more concerned about the inner beauty of your life and your potential spouse's life than your external beauty. Be more concerned about waiting for a person of faith than running after someone who's attractive that doesn't have your faith in Jesus. Trust God. Wait. He will take care of you. He took care of Ruth. The Apostle Peter put it better than anyone else. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of our inner self, the unfading beauty of a quiet, a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in the sight of God. Be more concerned about the inner beauty of a prospective spouse than an external beauty. There are probably men and women in your life that could be a good fit if you're single as a spouse but you've never seen them because you're looking at external beauty rather than faith and character you've fallen the trap of our culture that says look for the external beauty rather than the internal beauty it's the only beauty that lasts notice another thing about Ruth that so many of us get wrong in dating one she doesn't panic and rush two she didn't procrastinate and get passive. Attention, isn't it? Some of us panic and we rush and we want to, am I going to be single forever kind of thing? And some of us go, oh, it's just come, it'll just all happen eventually and I don't need to do anything about it. Ruth's neither of those two. She didn't panic or fear. She doesn't procrastinate or rush. She used her singleness and her time and her flexibility to take risks for God, risks she could never have taken as a married woman. Chapters one and two. She didn't let her singleness hold her back, but she trusted in God because her hope was in God, not her husband. Her security was in God, not her husband. There are probably certain ones of you that attempted to start dating people that maybe you shouldn't date because you're panicking. Wait for the right person. If they don't have the character, if they don't have faith in Christ, wait, trust, he'll provide. Or at least talk about it with that person. Will the example of Ruth inspire you today? Don't rush into things when they're not good or of God. Don't get the order of faith, character, and looks the wrong way round. Don't be so desperate for a partner you make a bad decision it's hard to recover from and it will just cause heartache later down. Have the tough conversations now. Think of Ruth. She didn't go after the younger men, the better-looking man. She went for the man of substance, a man of faith, a man of moral integrity. And when she found him, she made her intentions clear. That's my third point. Be clear and honouring with your intentions. Whilst Ruth didn't panic or rush, 
she was clear with Boaz as what she wanted. She wanted to marry Boaz and challenged him to rise to the occasion to be her husband. That was a very rare thing in the ancient world for a woman to do something like that, to take such initiative. But women still have to do that, and that's fine. Boaz is clear with his intentions. He says, as soon as Ruth says, look, I want to marry you, I'd love to marry you. I didn't think you'd think of me, I'm too old, but okay, fine, let's, I just need to go and check with a nearer of kin kind of thing, you know, do the Old Testament law thing properly. So both honor one another. Both are super clear with their intentions. Too many relationships these days lack clarity. Clarity on whether you're actually a couple. You know, the relationship begins with a few too many drinks and a bit of passion and kissing and not sure what's going on. Not Ruth and Boaz, very clear. Where do we stand with each other? Clarity on the relationship. You know, often the girl, but stereotype, excuse me, you know, is unclear about how fast things and wants it to be a bit more serious and the guy's a bit blasé to it all. Not Ruth and Boaz. Very clear. Clarity on whether it's building to marriage or not. Often relationships today just drift aimlessly rather than couples thinking, is this leading to marriage? And if not, why not? Can I encourage you not to imbibe the fuzziness that our commitment-phobic culture has towards relationships, cohabitation, and marriage. God wants us to honor one another, and that requires clear communication. It will save you from so much heartache. Fourthly, I love this point from Paul Miller. Discover God in the hard times on the journey to love. In his book again, he says, the Hebrews were alert to poetic patterns in life because they knew their designer God crafted their lives. Many Christians get stuck trying to grow their faith by growing their faith. They try to get closer to Jesus by getting closer to Jesus. Practically, this means they combine spiritual disciplines, the word and prayer, with reflection on God's love for them. But that will only get you so far. In fact, it often leads to a spiritual moodiness where you're constantly taking your pulse wondering how much you know the love of God for you. Or you go on an endless idol hunt trying to uncover ever deeper layers of sin. Oddly enough, this can lead to a concentration on self and a kind of spiritual narcissism. Ruth discovers God and his blessings as she obeys, as she submits to the circumstances that God has given her. So instead of running from the really hard things in your life, embrace it as a gift from God to draw you into his love. Profound. Don't go... I want to become more godly. Obey, as you know, God has called you to obey and submit in the places he's called you to submit. So we've talked about well-used singleness in the service of others. We've talked about intentional and wise dating. Now let's briefly talk about sexual boundaries that honor God and one another. There is a blog post coming out tomorrow that I've written with more on this. I'll be brief now. And I share this as a fellow struggler who failed with sexual boundaries before I was married. So I say this humbly. Ruth 3 is a great passage about how within God's world, there is a wonderful place for romance, tension, spark, eros, sexual arousal. The Hebrews were not prudes. Just read the Song of Songs. They delighted in sex as a gift from God and the physical body as a marvel of God's creation. Sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed. But Ruth 3 tells us that sex is for marriage and marriage alone. God desires all sexual activity to happen within the context of the marriage vow. 
So before marriage, you might express affection physically, but that expressed affection that's physical must not create arousal because arousal is leading somewhere that it's for marriage only. So physical touch is appropriate before marriage to express affection. Physical touch is not appropriate before marriage to create arousal. As the Song of Songs repeatedly uh, famously says to the lovers who want to embrace each other but have to wait to marriage, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. There is a context for sexual pleasure and intimacy and the context is the covenant of marriage. Sex is like fire, powerful but dangerous. Don't play around with it. We put fire guards around fires to stop children hurting themselves by getting too close. Well, I urge you, listen to the fire guard God has put around the beautiful gift of sex so you don't get burned. The fire guard is marriage. Sex is like the sea. I love the sea. I swim in it every week. It's wonderful and refreshing to plunge myself into the sea. But you can drown if you're unprepared and don't take it seriously. Listen to the maker of you, the maker of sex, the one who knows it better than you know it, before you plunge in. The emotions and desires might be fully aroused and awakened. I'm sure they were for Boaz when he was taken off guard. Wait, show restraint, fear the Lord, honor one another. So let's talk about marriage in the service of others. Why do Ruth and Boaz get married? Now, you have to come back next week to really see this. Do they get married for one another? Kind of. But they actually get married to bear a son that will be Naomi's heir. Their marriage was never about themselves alone. It was for the the barren, well, the widow, the, the old woman, Naomi, so she could be cared for. They get married for themselves, yes, but they get married for Naomi. Ruth and Boaz did not seek marriage as an end in itself. They sought God and serving others as an end in itself. And marriage served those two ends. We've got a lot to learn from this. Married people have a vital role in the lives of single people, opening up our homes and our families to care and strengthen others. Of course marriage must be protected and guarded. It must be prized and invested in. Of course it needs intentionality and the romance and the spark needs to be rekindled through the years. Leanne and I are just coming up to nearly 18 years. We know these lessons. Of course we need help in our marriages to ensure that they do last till death do us part as we vowed. Of course marriage is not easy. Couples need input from single people and other people as well. But all that said, marriage is not about you alone if you're married. It's about God and it's about others. One day earthly marriage will fade away and the reality to which it's always been pointing will become the reality for everyone who follows Jesus. The two will become one. The bridegroom will have his bride. Jesus will come back and will make a home together in the new heavens and the new earth with a huge, wonderful family with God as our heavenly father. Ruth and Boaz's story of romance points forward to the ultimate story of romance. We are all made to enter. Jesus is the man of standing. He's the man of integrity. He's the man who fears the Lord and shuns evil, the man who cares for the outsider and the vulnerable. And we are the outsider. And God invites us in through his blood to come and be intimate. We're the vulnerable ones 
we're the desperate ones. We were dead in our sins and our transgressions. We could never save ourselves. We could never pull ourselves up. We could never work hard enough. We needed a rescuer, and he's come. And I urge you, whether you're single or married, you're dating or not, whether you struggle greatly with these issues or you're in a good place on these issues, come to Jesus. He's the one our hearts are made for. He's the only one that will fulfill you, and his family is the only place that will ultimately and fully embrace you. It's only when Jesus is your all in all will you be able to use singleness in the service of others without panicking, and without procrastinating. You'll be wise and intentional in your dating and you'll think in love, not just fall in love. You'll honor God with your sexual boundaries and you'll use your marriage for the service of others to the end of your days. He's our guardian redeemer. Find refuge under his wings. Seek his face and his law above everything else and wait for him. He's coming back and he'll ravish you and embrace you like no one else can. Father, we live in a world that gives completely different advice to what I've just said. When it comes to singleness and sex and marriage, everything I've said is almost 100% countercultural. But we take a moment to sit under your word as we think about marriage and singleness and dating and being men and women. And we pray, Lord, as we think of Ruth and Boaz and we think most of all to who they point to, Jesus, the bridegroom, coming for his bride, us, the church, that we would honour you in, for those of us that are single. May there be great lessons here we can take away. For those of us that are dating, May this be a helpful passage and helpful principles to consider. May those of us that are married will make our marriages in service of you and others to strengthen the communities around us. And may this help us all think about Jesus as the one who, who in him all our hopes and desires and our sexual desires are all fully and finally met. And one day when he returns, we'll, the earthly marriage and earthly sex will fade away as it was just going to be a drop in the ocean compared to the love we'll experience that day. And so we look forward to that day when he returns. Help us to wait well and to serve well until he returns. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>